everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And we are back for the month of May, and we're talking about a film that is beloved. It's also kind of reviled. It has a lot of feelings and emotions around it. I know I certainly have a lot of feelings and emotions around it. And it's one of the few times for this podcast that... I hadn't seen the movie that we're going to talk about before prepping for this episode. Mm -hmm. So this was pretty cool. And if you didn't already know, we are talking about Takashi Miike's Audition. And this is a film that often gets brought up in a lot of like the 25 best horror movies you've never seen or the most fucked up horror ever. And it, it kind of falls in line with those lists. So I'd been aware of it for so long and uh, sat down to watch it a few years ago. I think I got about 20 minutes in and I liked it, but I could just tell I was not in the right mood for it. Mm -hmm. So I was having kind of a weird day a couple weeks ago, came home, watched it and totally fell in love with it. I guess the way you fall in love with this movie, if you do. Yeah, it's really interesting that a lot of those lists that refer to this film as influential and one of the best and one of the craziest and one of the most memorable scenes ever depicted in horror don't really go that deep into it. I was kind of intrigued at how surface level a lot of the analyses out there was. So I'm really excited to get into it today on the podcast. And I think because there is so much going on in this movie, and it's such a long movie that spans genres and stories and narratives that we just got to dive right in. So this is Takashi Miike's audition. <laughs> is a lonely widower with a teenage son. After his son teases him about getting a girlfriend, Aoyama and his friend Yamazaki devise a plan to hold auditions for a film that will probably never get made to find Aoyama a wife. Aoyama becomes transfixed by a young woman named Asami who is beautiful, lovely, and subservient. She can no longer pursue her dreams of ballet dancing due to injuries and hopes someone someday will see value in her. Yamazaki is wary of Asami as her references are all dead ends, but Aoyama continues to court her. After several dates, they go to a seaside hotel where Aoyama intends to propose marriage to her. Asami details the abuse she suffered as a child and asks that Aoyama promise to love her and only her. They have sex for the first time, and the next morning, Asami is nowhere to be found. Aoyama tracks down the dance school where Asami studied as a child, but finds only a deranged man with prosthetic feet, and the bar where she claimed to work at has been abandoned for over a year. Unbeknownst to Aoyama, Asami goes to his house and finds a picture of his dead wife. Aoyama returns home and succumbs to the drugs that Asami put in his liquor. Asami tortures Aoyama because he broke his promise to love her and only her. She amputates his feet and sticks needles in his eyes as Aoyama's son comes home. Aoyama's son and Asami fight, and the son pushes Asami down the stairs, killing her. As the son calls the police, Aoyama hallucinates Asami, telling him that she's excited to see him once again. Creepy. Super creepy. I don't know if actually the description of it without the movie does it justice. And I think what you lose in the description, and I was wondering this when I was watching it, is what would it have been like to see it at the film festival with very little prior knowledge of this? Mm -hmm. Because I think Asami has become a pretty big iconic figure within horror. Yeah. You know, she's memed, she's on the cover of the DVD looking menacing, but in reality, it's this kind of final sting that turns the film on its head. And before that, the film really plays as somewhere between a romantic drama and a romantic comedy. And it's really like a solid hour and a half or hour 40 of this, you know, slightly odd 
drama with these really, really creepy instances that totally explodes into something that's nightmarish and dreamlike and ultimately becomes a really horrific scene of torture porn. That's right. And I think for people who checked out Audition in the festival circuit, Takashi Miike had made his name with Ichi the Killer, and that was a huge gore fest. It was super bizarre. When it screened at TIFF, they handed out barf bags and stuff. So I can imagine audiences being kind of like, where is this going? This is slow. And then it ramps up to 11 in the third act. I like that Mike really plays with the genres as I was mentioning. The opening sequence of the film is the son going to the hospital with something he's made for his mother who's basically on her deathbed and dying. And Aoama is standing by her bedside and kind of weeping over his wife as she dies. And it's just this really emotional thing that doesn't feel out of place in like a Miramax movie. Mm -hmm. It's these things that kind of play for Oscar moments. And to know that it's going down a really strange path, I found really interesting. And I like the way it evolves. And some of the reviews I checked out after seeing it, people were really kind of divided on the, they either got into the flow of the film Mm -hmm. and like followed it the whole way through and got a really interesting payoff for it, or there was a resistance to it. Mm -hmm. They didn't like the slow pacing. They didn't like the imagery. There was a lot of stuff that didn't add up for them. And what I like about this film so much, and what I think for me elevates it above so much else, is Mike's willingness to play with genre. And I sometimes find that in genre... When you speak about that in films, whether it's a, you know, a romantic comedy, a merchant ivory film or torture porn, you have to really subscribe to a set of rules, just like, you know, slashers. We all have sets of rules in genres that you pay homage to, but that's not life. Life isn't like that. And I like that he takes a lot of risks, but with a really firm hand and a clear idea to fully articulate this really bizarre story. It is a bizarre story. And so we should talk about the journey. We should talk about how Aoyama is so sympathetic throughout. It's really hard to dislike him. And on some level, I kind of want to, and we'll get into that later, because, you know, the audition is bogus and he did a very shitty thing. But you can relate to his loneliness insofar as the audition was such a creepy act. He's not a creepy guy. He seems like a genuinely nice guy and his affection for Asami seems sincere. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about how Often this kind of narrative comes up in rom-coms, how often men are likely to deceive their way into a woman's good graces and then she finds out and they fight and they don't speak and he makes it up to her and they fell in love all along. And we've been fed that narrative so many times that I I think we've become maybe a bit complacent in it. And then here it is in this horror movie and then you start to kind of reevaluate, did he deserve any of this? Who is the villain here? I know for me personally, I was raised on a lot of rom-coms. My mom was like a rom-com fan. I may have seen Pretty Woman more times than any other movie ever. Like, it, it was omnipresent in my childhood. Maybe that's why I kind of have a really strong resistance to them now. The narrative Andrea was just describing is bang on. They fall in love. There's a pretense. Fucks up. They apologize. Pop song plays. And everyone's super happy at the end. But in real life, it doesn't work like that. When someone you care about does something shitty to you, there's no big, grand, sweeping gesture that can truly make up for that. You know, it's a lie. It's an action. It's something that I think really plants a seed of mistrust. And again, I like how subversive this film is to that. Because ultimately, for me, this this film is about two people who kind of want the same thing deeply misunderstand each other. Again, they've got the same objective. They're just coming at it with completely different tactics and goals and means. And they just want to be loved. They just want this kind of all-encompassing love that will hold them and take care of them until they die. And it falls apart so spectacularly and so quickly because they're not really willing to understand the other one. So the title of the film Audition is essentially the narrative device that makes everything happen. What's interesting to me about the fact that it's an audition is it points to the superficiality of dating as well as show business. I thought it was really interesting that they were auditioning for a regular woman, and that was kind of the device that Yamasaki used to get Aoyama on board was that, you know, we're not going to get a diva, we're not going to get a big movie star, somebody who wants to be a superstar. We don't want anyone too flamboyant. We just want a regular nice girl. So 
he thinks he's looking for a real woman, but it's an audition. So he's actually looking for someone who can play a real woman. And that's exactly what he gets. So in terms of what people want from a mate, there are still vestiges of evolutionary psychology in what we consider attractive. Like when I was studying psychology in my undergrad, we learned the rules of attraction, which is to say physical attractiveness, proximity, similarity, and reciprocity. And the digital age actually really complicates these things because insofar as the world shrinks with the internet, we're a lot less likely to know our next door neighbors. Like, I don't know about you, but when I'm running errands in my neighborhood, it's sunglasses on, headphones in. And then I come online and I'm like, hello, world. I get on Twitter and I'm like, hi, how are you? (laughs) So the movie was made in 1999 and the internet existed and people were, of course, hooking up on it. But... Online dating has really become a staple of modern culture, and it's not entirely unlike Aoyama's audition. Like, the real difference is that people sign up in the interest of romantic connection. And that's a factor of consent, and that's really where the creepy factor of this whole audition is. It's such an interesting moment in the film when Aoyama first comes across Asami's application. And he's, you know, looking through the stack of papers and he comes across Asami and it's this photo of her and she's beautiful, but like the long hair and, you know, very sedate in her photo. And she just kind of talks about how she feels like she's been passed over. She had this dream of being a ballet dancer and now she can't because she's injured and she knows she's probably not a good actress, but she hopes someone somewhere considers her, just considers her. And it kind of plays into this low self-esteem thing that is very true and very honest of uh, a lot of people. And you can see that Aom is attracted to that and that there is a sense that he can offer her something. Mm-hmm. He can give her something in exchange for her pain and her vulnerability and something that will perhaps tie her to him forever. It's It's a creepy thing. And, you know, when you look through dating profiles and you're on dating websites and it's everyone is just kind of playing this part of themselves. They're trying to tell you the coolest parts of themselves. And it feels so different because if you ever actually meet up with any of those people, there's a huge disconnect between what you see on a paper or a screen and what you see sitting in front of you. Yeah, it it makes online dating problematic, even though on paper, it just seems like such a good idea. Like when you think of Meeting a potential mate out in the wild, like depending on your needs, depending on how specific your hobbies are, like these are two people who consider themselves, I don't know, they don't both consider themselves damaged. Asami definitely does. But when it comes to Aoyama, he is a widow with a child. And that in and of itself is an element of baggage that a prospective mate should know before getting into it. So online dating is kind of a vehicle for people to put that out in the open, that I am separated, I have kids, I am this or I'm that. You get what you sign up for. I think it's also interesting to note that there is a very small subplot in the film with Aoyama and his secretary, and they've slept together, and the secretary seems a bit sad that Aoyama has never truly paid attention to her after that, and she tells him she's getting married, and he's like, that's cool, bye. I thought that was interesting because that secretary is with him, you know, let's say 40 plus hours a week and knows him. Polly knows about his dead wife, knows about his teenage son, is still attracted to him, likes him, wants to still be around him. Mm -hmm. And that connection just isn't there. Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of sad thing when you see this woman just being like, I'm getting married, I guess, kind of rather be marrying you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that pain when you when you feel like someone sees you for who you are and you can't bridge that gap. Yeah, I really liked that part. I missed that or I I didn't remember it. Upon rewatching the film to record the podcast, I was like, oh, yeah, this little side plot. And I was struck by how that little side action complicated the character of Aoyama, because like I said, he's very sympathetic. We're seeing it all through his eyes. We want him to be okay. We know he's not going to be okay because this is a Takashi Miike film. Some shit's going to go down. But at the same time, you messed around with your secretary, dude. Like you're supposed to be a lonely guy who's looking for true love. And it looks like you're actually in the end. It looks like you're just going with whatever's convenient, whatever's getting handed to you. I think that speaks to the kind of separation of self Aoyama has. He's got this perception of self that is, he's a lonely widower and he's dedicated himself to his son and his work and trying to be good for the people who need him. And I'm sure in large parts, that's true. 
But he's, you know, had an affair with his secretary, maybe some other women, you know, he's got other relationships outside of himself, but he can't marry that to how he likes to perceive himself, which is kind of as a victim Mm -hmm. uh, and a victim of circumstance. And he can't overcome that to see the things that are in front of him, to have these kind of normal organic relationships. He wants something that is this filmic thing. Mm -hmm. He wants the romance with this tragic woman who he will save and who he will make personally feel validated and needed and wanted. And um, I like that dichotomy. Yeah. Well, he fully falls in love with Hisami on paper. You know, he's pretty much decided on her before the auditions even begin. And there's that little bit offensive reel of unmarriageable women because they're egomaniacs, they're this, they're that, they they have weird idiosyncrasies that are really not a big deal, but it's funny to watch that reel, right? Anyway, he falls in love with her on paper, and even when his friend says there's something not right about that girl, even when he checks out her references, and not only do they not check out, but they're sketchy as shit, he still holds on to that fantasy of that woman that he's built up in his mind. And my experience with online dating is that you're given an image, you're given a little bit of information, and then if you're attracted to the person, your mind will just fill in all the blanks with all the good stuff. And it almost sets these people up to fail. It's interesting because I feel like you can develop these longer relationships with people in online dating. And as someone who's still in and out of the dating pool myself, I've never actually gotten into anything I would consider truly real with someone I've met online. But I'll always kind of give it a shot. And when I'm at a bar and I see a cute guy, I can go up and talk to him if he's, you know, on his own and doing his own thing. And within like 30 seconds, I'm like, no, no, have a great night. I'll, I gotta go back to whatever I was doing. But online, you can talk to someone and they can seem fine. And then you meet up with them for a drink and you're just like, oh no. <laughs> it's such a complicated thing. And one of the most painful things I have encountered in online dating is I'm just swiping through guys. And there's a lot of guys out there who are looking for good girls. And that term and that phrase has always given me the willies. Mm. I don't like it. And it's this weird exaltation of women and femininity. And so as I was thinking about this, this plays in so much to audition because Aoama is looking for this very specific kind of woman, a very docile, ladylike, elegant, demure kind of woman, someone who will essentially be subservient to him, whose main goal in life will be to be his wife. So it led me on this kind of long research path over the last little while. And there's some articles about good girls. And then you can get into a lot of sites for guys about like how to find good girls. Mm -hmm. And those articles are super creepy as well. And uh, I did actually stumble upon an academic article, which we'll link in the show notes, which I really enjoyed. And I kind of hit on a lot of the points I'd been thinking about over the years. And it's called Nice Girl, Social Control of Women Through a Value Construct. And it's by Greer Littleton Fox. And Fox talks about the ways that women are controlled, and that is through confinement, um, i.e. restricting movement, protection, making women feel weak and, and you know, like we're going to protect you from all the bad people out yeah, there. don't go out without me. Exactly. And then the normative restriction, which is valuing being chaste, gentle, good, gracious, quiet, docile, and it's setting both a standard and a goal for behavior. And it's a kind of constant deferment to the man. And this state of good girlness, which is what Fox kind of comes to define as the normative restriction, is Yes, it's a goal, but even if you've kind of supposedly attained it, it can be lost so quickly. So you've always got to kind of work for it and you have to adapt to it and you can be a good girl while you date, but then you have to be a good girl as a wife and then you have to be a good girl as a mother and then you have to raise good girls. And it's this kind of really sick twisted thing because it denies women agency. It denies them uh, sexual freedom. It denies them speaking their own mind in so many ways. That's where I think that kind of pit in my stomach starts. And I think you can see some of these elements within the film. So some of the really creepy moments throughout the film as it's playing out as this romantic drama, romantic comedy, you get these really creepy shots of Asami 
sitting alone in her room and there's either a bag that moves occasionally or a phone and she's just sitting there with her head down and it's creepy as fuck like those scenes they stayed with me much longer than any of the torture at the end it plays into this thing of like i just gotta wait for this guy to call me and oh i hope he does like this really interesting extreme but she's confined to her room she's confined and controlled and yet Part of that she did to herself, but there's part of it where she's feeding into a societal norm. And the notion of protection, the abuse that Asami experiences and she details, especially towards the end, came at the hand of her kind of adoptive parents and the other people in her life who were supposed to protect her, but use that protection and that control to hurt her further. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see this notion of the good girl in this film as something Asami has been able to use to obtain a goal. I believe she truly does want someone to love her, but only her to a really kind of psychotic end. But she's been conditioned to be this good girl as a means and a ways. It's not truly who she is because society has kind of corrupted whomever she might have truly been. Yeah. So the fact that this movie equates dating with a performative element, the fact that it's an audition kind of got me thinking about when you're going on a blind date, obviously everybody puts their best foot forward. And I was doing a little bit of research on online dating and statistically both genders value appearance. Obviously, that's that's equal across genders. Both genders are 20% less likely to check out a profile that doesn't include a photo, for example. Age and smoking tend to be big deal breakers. Women care more about their partner's height, particularly tall women. But these deal breakers drastically affect whether or not someone gets a chance at being seen so much so that they are often lied about. And these are the factors that people tend to lie about. I remember when I was on the scene, I would, I I think I would not say whether or not I smoked because I felt like whether or not the guy smoked influenced whether or not I'd smoke. Honestly, like I felt like I could date a non-smoker and I'd quit. Or if I dated a smoker, I guess I'm going to smoke. Sad but true. See, I do this thing where I like, put like, I love horror movies and I write about horror movies and do stuff with them so that it's not, you know, make or break for a partner to love horror movies, but they have to respect it. Yeah. And the amount of guys I get who are like, oh, you should have like messaged me back so I can tell you more about horror films. And I'm like, like, not like, do you know who I am? But like, kind of, do you know who I am? (laughs) So another effect of online dating that is interesting sociologists right now is the dating culture, the dating behaviors that didn't used to have a name. For example, the three-day rule. We all know what the three-day rule is. We all follow it. Ghosting. Ghosting has a name now, even though it's something as old as time, but now it's being talked about in that way. And it adds a layer of gray to the relationship spectrum. You know, it's not just dating to engage to marry. There's hanging out. There's hooking up, seeing each other or whatever before the actual relationship status has been established. And for the most part, what's most interesting to me is this crazy power game where you're both waiting for each other to call, but the first person to do so loses all the power. And I'm really interested to see where society goes with that because something's got to give. I'd love to say that it would, but I don't know. Statistically, people are getting married later or not at all. So maybe that's the beginnings of the byproduct of online dating. They're forming more open relationships that work better with the demands of millennial careers and values and stuff like that. But that said, there are, of course, benefits to dating in the modern age. You can lurk someone on Facebook. How much time would Aoyama have saved if he was able to just Google her? Oh, no, no, you're you're underestimating Asami. She would have had, like, her Facebook, like, tight yeah that shit would have been locked down like today i made a loom uh finished that crochet project sat quietly and thought about flowers like no 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 she would get them all okay you know i once said someone recognized me from the podcast on online dating no way yeah i I thought long and hard about if i should respond because he was like hey are you you know alex from faculty of horror and i was like uh i don't know if i want to do this and i sat on it for a little bit and i was like yeah it's me what's up and then he was like can you recommend horror movies to me and i'd be like okay here are three i've seen recently that i really liked he's like oh i've seen them you got any more and i'm like i'm not fucking blockbuster dude (laughs) 
Imagine the perfect video store. It would have a great selection, right? Right! Over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout. 24-hour quick drop return. Open late every night. Well, the perfect video store... Welcome to Blockbuster Video! ...is popping up all over the country. I think one of the things Audition does so well is it really separates the worlds of Aoyama and Asami, and it needs to because you need to create mystery around Asami. You need to kind of have this breadcrumb trail of like something's really not right with her, so you have this kind of big turn at the end. But there is so much selfishness. There's no pushback on it, and I think that's why there's something very empowering about this woman, even if she's totally psychotic, just being like, no, you know what? Fuck you. You're going to love me and only me, or I'm going to amputate your goddamn feet. And it's this thing that she has conformed and she has become subservient to this culture. And she asked for one thing. It, it's almost like Grimm's fairy tale, like this kind of simple promise that you make that backfires on you. And she just gets pushed to this end and he breaks the promise and she realizes it and she just rips him apart as she was ripping apart other people before him. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a young girl, if you're good and you don't put out on the first date and you let the guy make choices and decisions, you'll be rewarded with a really great relationship or at least a relationship. And that's often not the case. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of abuse and emotional abuse that gets lobbed at people. And I kind of really respond to this film as a feminist film because Asami just was tired of taking shit and she was taking shit for so long mm -hmm. and then she would kind of put these men through their paces and then the second they stopped doing what she said she was like fine I will treat you the way you treated me or the way you've kind of treated women in this really extreme measure. I have been thinking about whether or not this film is feminist, whether or not I want to consider it feminist. We've got Asami who is getting vengeance on all men for what a whole bunch of men have done to her. And I, you think of the hashtag, not all men, like this is literally that. Aoyama does not necessarily deserve what he got, but he's not totally innocent and he didn't do his due diligence. And I would like to say it's very interesting reading reviews and analysis of this film, a lot of them are written by dudes. Mm -hmm. And fair enough, like that's, you know, there's a vast wealth of male film critics, and that's great. We love you all. But there is this kind of rhetoric around this nice man, Aoyama just made this mistake, and he was just trying to be a good guy and get with this girl, and then she turns out to be a total fucking psychopath. We've all been there, right, guys? Oh, tell me about it. And... It just kind of does away with so much else that this film is talking about. And yeah, it was one of the things that like rang through loud and clear to me that no one's purely good and no one's purely bad in this film, but we're beholden to these societal constructs, which maybe don't do any of us any good. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a struggle for every successful relationship I know, and, and there are a number of them. There's such a give and take, and it's constantly evolving. There's no just like, she's a good girl, so I married the good girl, and she's a good girl. It's like you're constantly learning about your partner and evolving with them. Ideally. <laughs> so whether or not this film is feminist, I do think that it challenges the patriarchy because Asami is objectified again and again in so many ways throughout her history as depicted in this film. She's objectified by Aoyama as just another hopeful actress, one page in the stack of maybes, someone to swipe left or swipe right. She was objectified as a sex object by her stepfather person. She was objectified as a child through ballet. And we talked a little bit about ballet in episode 19 when we talked about Black Swan. Ballet is known for fine art, difficult standards of performance and a tremendous toll on the body. And something that struck me about Asami was that the damage to her hip, she says my hip was damaged. And I was like, that's an interesting translation. And I was ready to chalk it up to translation. But the night that they spend in that resort, she reveals this scar and then a flashback reveals what the trauma to her hip was. And it's cosmetic. So technically, that shouldn't preclude her from dancing, but it does, because it's ballet, and you can't have a gnarly fucking scar on your leg. 
I think it's interesting. I really like that you use the word objectified and objectification because I think when we think of a woman being objectified through the male gaze, whatever you want to talk about, you think of like Selma Hayek and From Dust Till Dawn, like a purely sexual titillating being. And I like that this film critiques the objectification of women in the kind of pureness of them. You know, the delicate beauty, the long glossy hair, Mm -hmm. the very covered up wardrobe. But this, it really plays into the virgin whore dichotomy without ever showing a whore. This is really the most pure version of a woman. I also thought the kind of small subplot with Aoma's son was really interesting when he meets the girl on the train and she thinks he's cute. So he just brings her over and the dad is like, yeah, she's good. Like thumbs up, go get her. And then as Aoma's having the nightmare after he's been drugged, you know, she wants to like give him a blowjob mm-hmm. and it's like really disturbing and fucked up. And it kind of recalls some of the really fetishistic and BDSM porn that Japan has been known to produce. Oh, that's right. The whole schoolgirl fetish, the schoolgirl uniform is a Japanese girl thing. They're highly fetishized. And the reason Aoyama liked his girlfriend so much was because she was so sweet. And when she found out, oh, no, I ate your dinner. I'm so sorry. Let me prepare something else for you. That's a good girl. That's a keeper. So it kind of makes sense that he would have a nightmare where she's doing these dirty, dirty things because it's crossing that binary in his head. So we've already touched on societal expectations of the ideal woman in Japan. Now, the wronged woman in Japan is a trope. It's a trope in horror that we've talked about before. There's a lot of little girls and women who have been wronged who tend to come back and haunt that ghostly girl type thing. But the ideal woman in Japan is somebody who is cultured and very demure. Now, Japanese culture was known to be very egalitarian until Confucian ideas came from China, which shifted gender roles into men being loyal to their lords and women being loyal to their husbands. And it was that way in the feudal times. And then World War II marked a shift, as it did with most of the world, where women's patriotic duty was to bear children. And there was a lot of propaganda encouraging women to be married to the nation and to repopulate the nation with strapping young fighters for this war. Now, generally, the Japanese value conformity and its hard work toward a common good. How best can women serve their nation pleasing their men? And that's something that points to other things in Japan, such as forced prostitution, geishas, stuff like this. And in this film, we've got Aoyama who values skills. He wants a woman with a hobby, something that's going to keep her busy. And I think he was attracted to the fact that she had a history in ballet. She had a passion and that it was dashed. And I think the fact that her passion was taken away from her to him presents an opportunity that he could be her next. And I have some stats that come from an Economist article that was written in 2014, which we'll link in the show notes. And this article talks a lot about Japanese women and the fact that they are among some of the most highly educated with lots of opportunity when it comes to school and studying and university. But only 63% of them participate in the workforce, which is a much lower percentage than in other wealthy countries. Through the 2000s, there was a push for gender equality, but it was met with resistance over family values. And I think that's rhetoric that we see also over here in the West. Now, in 2012, women made up 77% of Japan's part-time and temporary labor force, with few holding technical jobs and managerial jobs despite a lot of them having the education for those kind of careers. And that's not to say that women in Japan are horribly oppressed and they don't like the lives they have. This article goes on to describe how a lot of women in Japan, especially the kind of middle, upper middle class women, have those conservative values. They don't need a job to define them or their status. And the Japanese work culture is kind of notoriously punishing. So the sense that if you are a woman and you do have ambitions in your career, but if you also want kids, it's, 
you know, not like a lot of us are very lucky to have in the West. I, I know particularly in Canada and the career I've had, there's a lot of safety around women. You know, you can get pregnant, take the year off, raise your baby and come back to a job in a lot of cases. And so there is a discrepancy between the expectations of women and then their value to society. There's a notion that they are, as audition depicts, these ornaments, these good girls, these ideal women who also have knowledge and value and opinions, but only to a certain extent. And if they're loyal to their husbands or their men or their partners, they will be taken care of in a certain respect. So they're trusting on a kind of patriarchal order to take care of them. And I don't know if the patriarchal order always works. I feel like we should put in a bit of a disclaimer in these discussions that we're having. Obviously, being a wife is amazing. So I hear being a mother is amazing. So I hear, you know, if you choose to go to work, if you choose to stay home, like your choices are completely valid and yours to make. What we are questioning is the societal implications and the societal expectations that start from birth. These expectations started all over the world and have been part of history for centuries. So it's important to question why we are where we are. And I think that's what we're doing here. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. I think I've talked in the podcast about capitalism. It, it not only happens at birth, it happens well before birth. It's a system that we're born into and we subconsciously emulate those above us. You know, like I didn't learn dating norms from my parents, obviously, because I wasn't around when they were doing that. Thank God. I learned it from TV. I learned it. And that's that's a generation ahead. So these things are kind of set out and they do have tremendous influence on us insofar as we are active agents in control of our own destiny. And I think when we're talking about other cultures, especially, we have to respect their histories and their value systems and the decisions that make inside that infrastructure. So we're not trying to be super critical or judge people or cultures when we have these conversations. We're just trying to draw attention to the patterns that we're seeing and that other people are seeing so that we can question them and say, hey, is this actually right? Or are we just being fed something so we do all the things that we're supposed to do as opposed to the things we actually want to do? I would really love to listen to a Japanese podcast talking about the West. Oh, God. Yeah. Refer us, listeners. Yeah, if you got a lead, let us know. Preferably in English. There's no subtitles in podcasts. Yeah, I don't think Google Translate would take well to the audio. So we should mention that Audition is based on a 1997 Japanese novel by Ryu Murakami, which was published in English in 2009. And the book saw a lonely documentary filmmaker seeking to find a mate through an audition, falls for a girl who was sexually abused by her disabled father and cuts off men's feet. And the criticism around this book was that it was really freshman level psychology. Like you've got a woman who was abused and she winds up perpetuating abuse that mirrors what she injured and it's daddy issues and it is surface level psychology but at the same time it cuts deep in this particular film like a wire let's talk about the wire yeah. i've seen it described as cheese wire mm -hmm. and i've heard it described as piano wire i was thinking piano wire me too I think that's because it harkens back to ballet yeah. and because uh, there's always in, in some ballet classes, there will be a live pianist playing along with the class. Well, yeah. And then when we visit her old stepfather, who was also kind of her dance guide guy. Instructor. Thank you. Her dance instructor, he's sitting there playing the piano. So it, it actually stands to reason that her trauma would be tied up with the instrument somehow. And it, it bears mention that, you know, damage to the feet, this is something that is a trope within horror. If we'll remember misery, damage to the feet means if your feet are fucked, you can't run away. And it is a very, again, freshman level physical control type horror. It also means you'll never dance again. It's not a surface level injury. And I know a lot of dancers who have, you know, horrible internal injuries, but to actually lose a limb is terrifying and limiting because you can, 
lose huge parts of your life. Well, yeah. And it's actually just one of the many means of forced dependency that Asami imposes upon her victims. Like we know that she keeps one in a bag and that she has mutilated him. She's a fan of dismemberment. That's kind of her jam. But there's also that crazy scene where she vomits into a dog bowl and feeds that. Like the forced dependency comes out in such horrific, gruesome ways. As soon as I saw that, I thought of like the mama bird feeding her uh, little like chicks. And I like the wire. The Wire is iconic. Like, again, having just been in the horror community, I've seen, you know, depictions, memes, all this kind of stuff about Asami with a wire. And I wasn't quite sure how it was used. But it's such a different weapon. Like, Jason has his machete. Michael Myers has the kitchen knife. Freddy has the fingers. But a wire is this thing that it kind of functions like some of those other weapons because it's brutal. It requires a level of intimacy, but a kind of painstaking grappling thing because as soon as she pulls it out and she starts talking about how it can even cut through bone and it's just this slow thing where she kind of works it through his foot mm-hmm. <laughs> like Mika actually doesn't do any real close-ups too much of the foot but you're watching Aoyama's reaction to it and that's far more horrific. Oh, it's plenty, and, yeah. yeah. and it's brilliant because he knows and he's got the restraint to not show, like, guts being pulled out, but of just the suggestion and then the actual notion of pain. And I think it's in those kind of moments in film when you're, like you just said about in online dating, how you fill in the gaps. Me as an audience member, I'm filling in the gaps of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. The layers of flesh being cut through, the muscle, the sinew, and then the bone, like, ugh. It's also interesting that she uses acupuncture needles. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, if she was a ballet dancer, acupuncture is ancient Asian medicine. And when I had a roller derby injury, I experienced acupuncture. It was really interesting. I got it in my face. And so I was thinking about that when I was watching this. Have you never had it? I've had it, but on my back. Okay. So I remember she put one right between my eyes because I had whiplash and a concussion and I was having crippling headaches. And all I wanted to do was take a selfie because I've got a fucking needle in my face and it's pinhead and it's rad. But um, but if you so much as made any facial expression, you would feel it and it's an icky little twinge. So I think it's interesting that she's using something medicinal and physical like that and just... It's actually a very calculated medical, how is this going to hurt the most? It's it's a very efficient torture. Well, if you think of, you know, if we're going to kind of armchair psychologize Asami. Yeah, let's do that. Why not? Um, these are all elements that would make Aoyama closer to her. Obviously, we've talked about the dependency with losing a limb. But thinking about Asami and her MO and, and the things she wants, like she probably thinks she's doing – she maybe thinks she's doing Aoyama solid of just being like, you're just this dumb dude and you're not going to do okay without me. So I'm going to make sure you stay by me forever. And I'm going to make sure you watch so you're with me forever and you never forget this. Yeah. Even the like kind of throwing up, again, it harkens back to the mama bird. But it's also like the symbiotic relationship where she's feeding him from herself. And it's a more layered, like there is this kind of surface level, like, ah, reaction to it. But there is that, you know, kind of quiet rumble underneath of like, she's tying herself to this person. Mm -hmm. Even if she kills him, it's like he knows exactly in the last moments of his life who he's dependent on. I also think it's interesting that Aoyama's son is the one who rescues his dad and gets that kill. And I think when I was watching it, I was a bit dissatisfied with that at first. I I found it kind of anticlimactic that that's how she got taken out. And then when she says those words at the bottom of the stairs, I'm like, oh, maybe she's not dead. Maybe there's more. But no, 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 no. That's it. So I suppose there's some poetry in the idea that, you know, it was all the son's idea that his dad get a new girlfriend and then the son who winds up saving him from her. See, I kind of read it as um, a bit of a dark coda for the film. Again, uh, me kind of taking this as a feminist film of this one woman just being like, 
fuck this societal norm. It's fucked me up and I will just tear it all to shreds, even unknowingly. She's gotten away with it time and again and again. You know, I say it, we can maybe count three or four times that she has in the film. And uh, it's Aoyama's familial tie that saves him. It's his tie to the kind of patriarchal order. Like he did have a wife and they had a son and his son is the one who comes home and finds him and can like fight back with Asami. And Asami doesn't have that. She was never given the family that loved her or cared for her. So she's fully on her own and it casts her from this kind of idyllic good woman to uh, what they would call in Victorian literature, the dark woman. You know, so her clothing changes, everything else about her changes, but these women were kind of always seen as misfits and others and only misery and terrible things would befall them Mm -hmm. because they didn't play by the rules or deviate from them in a socially acceptable way. So I I kind of like that. It was this really morose note that ended the thing. But um, I think the final moments when, for me, it's Aoyama hallucinating her saying that she's so happy to see him again. She didn't think it would happen. It's that's what he's going to live with. Right. And there's actually a lot of flashbacks and hallucinations in that ending scene. We go back to where they were in the resort. We go back to some of their dates and there's some dialogue that we didn't see. And in doing research for this episode, I did see people discussing these scenes and what it is they mean. I saw a really interesting theory about how all of their dates are kind of shot off kilter. Their conversations will cut to visuals of her crossing the road, for example, and it'll become kind of a voiceover. And it makes us wonder how much actually happened, how much was forgotten, how much was repressed. And again, that kind of brings me back to the whole dating thing and filling in the gaps. And my interpretation of the ending is Aoyama's finally filling in the blanks and whether or not these are things that he heard or he suspected or are only crystallizing now, it doesn't really matter because they're there and they were always there. And in this moment, he understands it and sees her for what she is. And I think Mikkei does a really smart job in in, in the dating sequences. And, you know, you see them at the beginning and then they kind of get woven into these hallucinations at the end. So you see them almost from another vantage point. And he's using, you know, filmic techniques, like they're sitting at a table having a conversation and the conversation continues in the audio, but the visuals are them, you know, saying goodbye and partying from the date. And uh, these are all basic, basic film 101 techniques. But what he does, and when you watch the whole film, and if you think back on it, you start to realize like, oh, this is where the reality starts shifting. This is where the two people start deeply misunderstanding each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how they fall apart. And it's, again, just like any first date, any date, you can think it went super well and the person you were on the date with thought it went terribly. Well, even a relationship, even within a committed and loving relationship, there are moments where that facade is just broken and it's all like sweatpants, sweatpants, (laughs) morning, noon and night. And I like that they use the filmic technique to, again, elevate these, you know, maybe mundane dates where they're just kind of sitting around being nice to each other and being very polite. And Mike heightens these moments with filmic techniques and music to be like, oh, he's really falling in love with her. This is great. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of realize that all the filmic techniques, as they become intertwined with the hallucinations and the nightmarish qualities, they're not true things. They're not filmic in the way that we tend to know them through a romantic comedy. These are kind of new tropes that he's repurposing and making them terrifying. Now, it's also worth mentioning that Takashi Miike is tremendously influential on modern horror filmmakers. He was a huge influence on Eli Roth's Hostel, so much so that Eli had Miike come in and do a cameo. I can definitely see shades of American Mary in that ending sequence when she's got that apron on and the gloves. And yet, I don't see this as a pregenitor to torture porn. Again, for reasons we've already described, you explained how the camera doesn't show us quite enough for us to be getting off on the torture aspect of it. I feel like this film is mostly about suspense, and there's surface-level psychology, but there's also some really artful forms of memory repression and, again, filling in the blanks. Yeah, for me, torture porn, and again, it's a totally valuable subgenre if you're a fan of it. They kind of revel in the like pulling out of the guts and the skinning of the flesh. And that's a big proponent of what makes those films those films. But 
For me, this film is really about a fear of intimacy mm-hmm. and the projection of self and the projection of your ideals onto someone else. And I think even if you are in the most healthy, loving, kind relationship, which I hope a lot of you are in, you're never going to fully know that other person. I don't think you can ever fully know someone else. You can develop relationship and build on it, but it is about that discrepancy of intimacy that people tend to gloss over. Now, I don't think Takashi Miike is a terribly cognitive filmmaker. He's he's known for controversy. He's known for his huge filmography. Like he will churn these babies out left, right, and center. And his filmography is a vast range of styles and content. But violence and sexual perversion are kind of mainstays throughout. But Audition's my favorite. Yeah, this is actually uh, the only Takashi Miike film I've seen. You haven't seen Ichi? No, and now I really want to. So I've heard that this film is quite different from his other films, but it's uh, definitely sparked an interest in me. So I'm going to try to seek some of them out and catch up. Cool. Yeah. I did promise my silly personal anecdote with Takashi Miike, and it's something that is going to bind me to him forever and ever. It's our own private little kitty, kitty, kitty. Is that why you walk with a limp now? It is. No. He came to town for some reason or another, and he came to the Rumorg Manor because several news media outlets wanted to interview him, but he was obviously only in town for a bit. He has to have a translator with him if we're going to interview him in English, and Rumorg has a really nice lounge in the back for filming it. So anyway, he came in, and I knew he was coming in that afternoon, and I was so excited. And this was a couple of years ago, and I might have mentioned on the podcast before, but I developed a allergy in the last couple of years. And when that allergy came on, I started developing hives. It's the first symptom I experience if I get exposed to it. And so this was back before I was diagnosed, before I knew anything was going on. And I had had some hazelnuts at lunchtime. And so I'm sitting at my desk and all of a sudden my hands are itchy and I'm flushed and I'm feverish. And Takashi Miike is in the building and he comes in and I just want to shake his hand, but my hands are on fire. But He's Japanese, so he gave me a little bow, and I gave him one back. <laughs> it was fine, and I remember being so grateful for his Japanese-ness. It's a pretty stupid anecdote, but I did promise it. I loved it. Thanks. So finally, in wrapping up, rumblings of an English-language remake were, of course, announced. They were announced in 2014 by executive producer Mario Kassar, who produced Terminator, Rambo and Basic Instinct, some really good shit. So, I mean, it's an executive producer, so that's, it's something. It was to be directed by Richard Gray, who has done other projects since the announcement, including Sugar Mountain and the upcoming Broken Ghost. So I have a feeling that's why it hasn't happened yet. Like, if you look on IMDb, these things are kind of already scheduled for him. So I don't know if it's still coming up. I haven't heard... Anything confirming or negating the possibility of a remake, but with the way things are going, I think we can expect an Americanized remake with a bunch of white people. Yeah, yeah. I saw a little bit about that when it came up in my research, and again, in reading some other articles about it, other people have mentioned it, obviously, and I can see some people being really excited about, like, yeah, I'd get rid of the slow, boring hour and a half and just, like, get to, like, the guts or, like, make it really fucked up. And again, kind of as I've mentioned already on this episode, like if it comes out, if it actually gets made, I'll probably see it out of interest. But to me, again, I'm really new coming to this film, but I think it's pretty perfect. And so I'm very happy because that film, it exists as it is, like it will always exist. But I don't know if it will have the same impact without that slow build, that kind of weird like bass rumbling of dread that happens within it because you're oscillating between Aoyama's like blind love and devotion to Asami and then everyone else kind of being like this shit's not right Mm -hmm. and even the film itself like if you think of the film as like a narrative force which obviously it is it's showing these moments of Asami like sitting alone just like entirely still waiting for a phone call like that's not right so I like that Mike takes the time to build this really long narrative Mm -hmm. and it's only when Aoyama is finally willing and ready to realize the truth about Asami that it all goes horribly wrong. 
Yeah, it's really interesting with this film how it's not it's not a twist and it's not a surprise. Like we're given ample material to suggest that she's demented and indeed as you mentioned she is on the poster, she is on the DVD cover with that apron and wielding her wire. So we know what's going to happen, but because the film takes so long in setting the stage, we don't forget but the story of how she gets there is an interesting and well-developed story. And I think that is what is crucial to what makes Audition great. So if you're listening, Mario Kassar, just give us that. That's it for another Faculty of Horror episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this. It was a really interesting conversation. Again, I know we're talking about love and gender and gender roles and expectations. And I know there are some sensitivities that come with that. So hopefully we're all still friends at the end of this. I think we are. Andrea, are we still friends? Oh, yeah. We're friends. What? I say that weird? I did say it kind of weird. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Andrea, I don't know why you're wielding that acupuncture needle and coming at my eye. Oh, this? Yeah. You got that headache. Oh, I did. Yeah, I do have that headache. Okay, well, we'll tackle that off mic, but we do have a couple announcements before we let you go. Next month, homework for next month, we're going to do something that uh, we've wanted to do for a little while now, and that's hang out with some werewolves. They are kind of one of the monsters we haven't talked about a lot. We've talked about ginger snaps, I think, in our first year. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to revisit a couple films that deal with werewolves and men and monsters and all that stuff. Yeah, and werewolves are interesting because insofar as the Wolfman is kind of part of the classic Hammer universal horror shtick, we have selected two films that are more modern, but they're still very much considered classics. They're very much considered ground zero for modern depictions of werewolves. And those films are The Brotherhood of the Wolf and An American Werewolf in London. So these are two films that are critically celebrated. I have seen them both and I enjoyed them both and I am delighted at the opportunity to revisit and discuss them. Yeah, I... um I feel like we haven't done like a lot of good monster stuff recently. So I'm excited to get back into uh, some of the big practical effects and look at two really iconic films. And I think they're iconic in two very different ways. So hopefully it will make for a good discussion. It should. And we have another announcement that is such a big announcement. It's, boy, I can't even believe we're saying this. We've been doing Faculty of Horror for over four years now. And every so often, somebody would ask us, what if you did a live show? Would you ever do a live show? Would you ever do kind of a Q&A? And we flirted with it a little bit with that YouTube video Q&A that I did. And we would always have episodes where we would read people's mail and do our assessment episodes. But fuck it, man, the right situation, the right time and the right place came along. And we are doing a live show this October. So we were approached by Salem Horror, which is a new festival going on in Salem, Massachusetts, the site of all the super fun witch hunts in Puritan America. And they're doing like a month long thing of like screenings and parties and events and panels. It's actually really cool. And they approached us and um, we've been talking and we're super excited to be a part of it. The program looks amazing. They're showing some really great films and uh, inviting some really cool guests. And we're so excited to be a part of it. So as it stands right now, we are scheduled to be there October 7th and October 8th. That's a Saturday and a Sunday. We've currently announced some of the things we're doing for Saturday, and I think we're going to be announcing some of the more specific things we'll be doing on Sunday, maybe including that live show. So stay tuned. You can start getting tickets at SalemHorror.com. We'll link them in the show notes. So be sure to follow us on social media. We are on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Follow Salem Horror on their Facebook, on their Twitter. So you get all the updates. As of right now, it looks like uh, we're going to hang out with Kane Hodder for a bit. That doesn't suck. Nope. So yeah, and and like a ton of really fun things. And uh, I'm really excited to go back to Boston. Love that city. And even more excited to go back to Salem. I went there uh, once for a day and to get to spend a bit more time there. It's um, a weird, beautiful little town and super, super excited. It's an excellent fest. I really love their programming. It's not a film fest in the traditional sense that it's going to be premieres and new releases and, you know, like there's any roll of the dice here. This 
Fest is celebrating the very best of horror, and they've assembled some really great panels and extras and parties and exhibits and stuff. So this is really the Horror Fans Film Fest, and I'm so pumped. I've never been to Salem either. I'm so going to accuse you of being a witch. I'm so going to be a witch. I think we're going to have so much fun. If you can't make it out to Salem, then we will still be talking about it. But hopefully we'll have a live episode to share with you all down the road. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, follow us on Instagram. You'll see us post weird photos of each other. Right. So as per usual, if you enjoyed this, please do subscribe to the show and follow us on all our social media. If you would like to drop us a review on iTunes, we would very much appreciate that because it helps the show grow. And, yeah, we've got all sorts of cool stuff coming up. The show is growing, whether we like it or not. Yeah, it's growing so much I might have to cut off its feet. (laughs) So, until next time, office hours are closed. Yeah.